Hey everybody, this is Pierre Quinn and you're listening to episode number 112 of the Leading Wild Green podcast where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Michael K. Levine, author of the book, People Over Process, Leadership for Agility. Now, before we jump into the conversation with Michael, I want to thank you for your support of the Leading Wild Grain podcast. You listen, you share on social media, you let people know about this leadership journey that we've been on, and it's been incredible having you along for the ride. I also want to invite you to join me on March 29th in Nashville for the next stop of the Find Your Courage Tour. The Find Your Courage Tour is part book signing for my book, Leading While Scared, How to Find the Courage to Keep Going, and it's part leadership development. And we've had an incredible ride starting in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Orlando, Atlanta, and now we're on that in Nashville on March 29th. All of you who listen from the Nashville area, we are thinking about you as you recover from the devastating tornadoes that that impacted the Nashville area recently. And we wish you all the best with the recovery efforts there. Hope to see you on March 29th. As we talk about life and leadership, we're going to give you tips and insights on how to lead better in in your marriage and relationships, how to lead better as an entrepreneur, how to lead your team, how to lead through discovering your own story and much, much more. So you want to get your tickets and join us on March 29th for the leading for the Find Your Courage Tour uh, Nashville stop. More information is available at couragenashville.eventbrite.com. That's couragenashville.eventbrite.com. We'll be rolling out our full speaker lineup very, very soon. And you want to get your tickets now while they're available for the early bird special. Okay, featured conversation today is with Michael K. Levine. He's a software technology leader and writer. He currently holds the responsibility of senior vice president for the retail banking technology group with U.S. Bank. And in his new book, People Over Process, he talks about these terms that we find in the software development world that have been accepted by the wider business and leadership world and what understanding these particular terms can do for a leader that's looking to lead in different ways. We talk about how organizations need to transition and how they need to really embrace that growth and progress in an organization is really dependent upon how well you treat your people. We talk about Michael's leadership journey and some some things that he learned early on that he keeps with him to this day. We have a great conversation. So listen up to my talk with Michael K. Levine. I'm excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading Wild Grain podcast with Michael K. Levine author of the new book, People Over Process, Leadership for Agility. Michael, thanks for being my guest today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you and your audience. So so take us back. What made you decide to pursue uh, economics and physics? Like, What what was the impetus behind that? (laughs) Yeah, that's an interesting question I haven't thought about for a long time. well, I think I've always been very analytical, and I, I was curious about how the world worked. And with the physical world around me, um, I and I love mathematics. So I fell in love with the idea of building mathematical models to describe the physical world. And um, you know, I remember how exciting it was in college 
to watch two particles collide and write the equations out for how they work. Um, I, I also remember um, an exam where I had to write the equation of a ice cube sitting on top of a, of a bowling ball and starting to melt and falling off. So that really excited me to do that and to see the predictability of it. Um, and then there was a certain point where I realized that at the microscopic level, those equations don't really work, and the, we don't really understand the physical world quite as much as we thought we did, and you get into quantum mechanics and probability. Um, and then the other thing is that I, I found that I really enjoyed working with people more than um, just writing mathematical equations about how the world works and doing physical research. Um, so I wound up switching my major in college to international economics. Um, and then pursuing that as a career, at least for a while. And you know how things are today. You start off in one career, and by the time you get uh, 10 or 15 years into it, fields open up that didn't even exist when you were in college. So I wound up kind of drifting my way into uh, information technology. So, so I take it you found in, in the banking world, in the banking industry, uh, more or less a good marriage of sort of analytical and process and then your your desire and inclination to work with people? I did. Um, it, um, you know, when I, when I grew up, my family was not into engineering and I didn't really have any peers or um, role models who were engineers. So I didn't really know what engineering was uh, until quite a ways into my 20s. Um, and then I realized at some point that that's what I was destined to be. I should be an engineer. And so once I once I fell into that mold, it had kind of a combination of um, you know facts and science and how things actually work, with the job of leading people and working with other people to get things done on a team. Um, that was a good fit for me. So let let's speak to the 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 place where not having engineers or maybe people with that that particular skill set or inclination in your family. What advice would you give to a person who? Maybe they're just starting off in their career or even they're at the collegiate level and they're starting to discover their gifts or their fit, but it doesn't seem like anybody else around them um, is interested or they could draw on readily role models uh, to help them in this area. You know, you know the taking advantage of opportunities you have to meet other people and to learn um, is a great thing. Um, you know, and it, it's also a question of patience sometimes that you might feel that you're not in exactly the right thing, but sticking with it long enough to make sure that it isn't the right thing. And then and one of the things I tell people is, you know, don't leave jobs too quickly. So stick around long enough so that you can kind of get a little bit of what did I do last year and did it help this year? Did it really do what it was supposed to do? And so you can develop some of those relationships and leverage them over time. So try something that looks like it's interesting uh, and then change if you have to. And don't wait too long. That's one of the other things that in my career, uh, I would tend to wait too long before changing jobs. Because you, so, so there's a happy medium. You want to stay long enough that you learn and you build that solid base of skills, but you don't want to stay too long. So you, you, you found this place and, and we, we can call you, we call you an expert as it relates to um, project management and software development. Help some of us, 
help some of us out who listen to the podcast. You know, we think that, you know, software just kind of shows up, shows up out of the blue. And we never, a lot of us don't think about the background of the process of what it takes to put a piece of software out there. So just kind of imagine you're giving us software development 101. How do we get to a place where we can use a piece of software? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's different levels of software development. Clearly there's the lowest level. We're actually coding something. And, you know, a lot of us do that. And a lot of your audience probably does it when they build, for example, a model in an Excel spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's doing software development at a very small scale. Um, then the level up from that is where you have a team of people doing that. And, you know, some of your audience might have a chance to do that in college or in high school where they have a team who's trying to do something. And there you have these different roles where someone is kind of the business expert or what are you trying to accomplish and is close to the people who are going to use the software. Then you have the people who are actually doing the coding itself who are kind of very technical. You have people who have to test it. And then you have people who are coordinating all of that to make it all work together. And that's one team. And then the next level up from that is where you have something that's much bigger, where you have to have, say, 50 or 100 people working together, where you have to figure out how to break it into multiple teams and how those teams work together. And then the level that I've been working at for the last 20 years of my career is kind of an enterprise, where you have multiple objectives and multiple large project teams um, who all have to work together around a corporate strategy or enterprise strategy. Um, and then you're dealing with things like how do you manage your portfolio projects and what do you prioritize and how do you invest over time? So that you have the whole spectrum from smallest to enterprise. Uh, and over time, as you grow as a leader, you tend to start at the smallest level and grow up in the, into the larger levels. What are some of the common challenges you see amongst people who maybe at one level they were an expert? A coder they were masterful at coding yeah. but now they have to transition to the, the management of people and yeah. outside of the entire process what are some of the common hiccups that people who make that transition uh, have to navigate yeah um, I'm, i'll tell you the story of kind of my leadership not learning um you know i was you know a typical kind of bright young kid who got into this and enjoyed the more technical side to start with uh, and then I became a leader of a team. Um, and at one point, we ha I had a, a leadership training class. And I know, I think you do leadership training, don't you? I do. Um, so I'm sure, I'm sure it's uh, very rewarding to the, my, the woman who taught this. Her name is Lucy, who taught this class. And the first thing she says is, what does being a leader mean to you? And to me at the time, it meant kind of figuring out what needed to be done and getting people to do it. Um, and I think at a certain level, that's kind of true, right? If you're, if you have a small team that's doing that um, and you're kind of accountable to the business to make something happen, that's kind of what your job is. And I learned that that's, as you grow, that's not what it's about. What the leadership really is about is how do you get everyone's head in the game? How do you make sure that you're making good decisions with rigor? Um, how do you do all that efficiently? And that led to my understanding this model that I call the, the leadership for agility, uh, which is those things, how to make a team work uh, in something that's highly intellectual. But at the end of the day, it turns into code that has to run. Mm -hmm. 
So it became a unique challenge for me to understand that kind of leadership because it wasn't natural for me. Um, and that, that um, I could see the benefits of it on my team and on myself over time. You, you, you outlined something in, in the book as it relates to this, this company that you have, have created to take us through this narrative. Um, and that sometimes as organizations, we can get so caught up in certain aspects of doing the business or doing the project, but we lose sight of the main thing. And I, and I can't, and I, and I remember a section early on the book where like, if it's, if we're not developing software, we're, we're, it's, it's, no, it's no point. And how, how do we kind of stem that tide of, we can go easily in our organizations and not just in software development, but across leadership spectrum, we can just go down rabbit holes and really just miss the main thing. And, and how as leaders can we, can, can we keep that alignment or as consultants even get people back to the main thing? Yeah. So, um, in, you know, the model that I talk about, um, there's the three main items are rigor, alignment, and efficiency. And I talk about rigor being the most important thing. And the reason for that is that if you don't have rigor, but you have alignment, everyone is marching together down the wrong path. And if you uh, have efficiency, but not rigor, everyone is being efficient in doing the wrong things. Um, so to me, um, kind of rigor is the most important thing. Um, and rigor means kind of having a clear understanding of what you're trying to achieve and, uh, you know, putting forth um, options about how to achieve that and deciding on the path based upon facts um, and experiments and learning. So uh, that to me is the most important thing is to have that rigor around what is the organization trying to accomplish and then being transparent about those options and looking at facts about what works and what does not work. And that's hard for people because that it means that as a senior executive, your word isn't, it isn't really what matters. Uh, your word's certainly important and ultimately you get to decide lots of things. But if people are just doing what you say, you're not going to be very successful. It's a sad state of things. Most of what we do, at least in the kind of work I do, requires a diversity of perspective and a lot of information that none of us have on our own. So you have people who are really good at understanding what customers want, but they don't know how to code. Yeah. You have coders who are really good at coding, but they're too bored to test. Um, <laughs> you have process engineers who are really great at understanding process, but don't understand what technology could do to help them. So you have to bring that all together as a team. No one knows the right answer. Where in, in your study and your, in your journey, did you see this pivot? Because the title of the book is, is people over process, which seems yeah. to suggest that there, there was a time or still a time where we, we lifted up the process as the main yeah. thing. I mean, going all the way back to industrial revolution, what, where, where did you begin to see in your career this shift to uh, an emphasis or an insight on uh, the the people that we do this with and how we interact with them is just as important or to some degree even more important? Than more important. Yeah, I think uh, um, I have to give a little bit of background on the evolution of the software world. Um, so I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent, but um, stop me if I go too deep. I, I'll try not to. I'm geeking out right so, now, so we're good. <laughs> 50 years ago, when we started doing software, 
the way it worked is a small number of people would have a problem and they would figure out what it was and they would code something and deliver it. And there was no process around it. It was creative. It was artistic. And it was heroes building really cool things. And as it became more and more important to our businesses, um, it became people sought better ways of doing it. And initial, initial methodologies were built of how to do this. And people tried to do it in a very logical way, which is write down what your requirements were hand it off to an architect who would design the basic models of it, kind of like a house. Um, then it would go to developers who would code it, and then they'd hand it off to people who would test it, and they would test it against the requirements. And it sounded really logical. You know, It sounded like, that's exactly right. If I'm a business person and I want to have an app that does something, I can write down what it is and hand it off to you. And when you, get, when you finish it, hand it back to me, and I'll test it. If it's fine, we'll go with it. If not, we'll debug it, and then we'll go. And so oh, over the, you know, the, the first 25 years of software, the, the methods, the processes became more and more specified. And the, the goal of turning software into a manufacturing process became paramount. Um, and it was easy for people because if you're told this is how the steps that you have to do, and if you follow these steps, it's going to come out okay at the end. You don't have to take personal responsibility. And you don't really have to work them together as a team that much. You just do your job. So as a software development manager, someone hands me the set of requirements. That's great. I just do that. If I do that, I win. It doesn't really matter then if it actually works right or has the business objectives that we want. Um, and then in 2002, uh, a group of people got together and developed what's called the Agile Manifesto. And these are people who have been doing software, and it was a, essentially a revolution against that model. It says we've gone too far, that this is not a manufacturing process. This is a knowledge building process. This is a team process. And the very first value that they articulated was people and interactions over processes and tools. Um, and you know, when I saw that, uh, I immediately fell in love with it because that's what I believed and that's how I worked. Um, and there's several other um, principles that are really important as well, but that's the most important one. And then what the question for me then was, how do you operationalize that? How do you make that real? What does it mean to lead with people and interactions? Because it's so easy to lead with processes and tools. Processes and tools, you can say, follow these steps, and then you audit it and make sure they do it. Um, and with tools, you can buy a tool and do it, and people make money selling processes and selling tools. It's hard to make money saying, use your people well and have valuable interactions. Mm -hmm. So I, I can imagine, you know, this created tension, not just in the software development industry, but as it had ripple effects throughout throughout business in general. So I know you talk about this in one of your previous mm. books, but kind of break down for us this this difference, this relationship between lean and agile and then how a person like you works to to navigate the tension between uh, maybe an yeah. expert comes along in, in lean and says, nah, I don't know if I like what you're suggesting. Yeah. I mean, I actually see, see agile as a subset of lean. So the people who did it, um, they weren't lean people, you know, they weren't embedded in the lean, in the lean community, but they were smart people and they find similar um, principles. 
And in lean, it's easiest to explain this in terms of lean and lean manufacturing versus lean product development. Lean manufacturing, if you think about, say, a Toyota auto plan, um, basically you want to standardize everything and measure everything and continuously improve everything. Um, and so it's all about processes and standards and procedures and measurements and continuous improvement. Um, and then on the product development side, Toyota is a good example of this, is they didn't even have a product development methodology. They had a culture of how they developed um, autos, and it's all about knowledge building and personal responsibility and roles. So they had like a chief engineer role, which was very important. They had certain milestones in the development of the car where each department had to come together and fit the pieces together and test it. Um, but they didn't tell each department how to do their own work. Each department did their own thing. So it's kind of a responsibility, expertise, knowledge-based, light project management side on the, on the product development side and very specified things on the manufacturing side. So if you take the analog and you turn it into the, the software world, there are a lot of leadership um, roles. Um, as you're figuring out what to do, uh, you have to have this knowledge-based, people-oriented approach. As you actually go to execute things, you have to become more standardized. And in software, we're going back and forth all the time. Um, and so there's a methodology that was developed to implement a lot of the agile ideas called Scrum, um, which, which kind of does a nice mixture of those two things. And I actually wrote this book because what I had seen is agile matured from 2002 to 2018 when I wrote the book. Um, we have, the industry's kind of fallen back into following Scrum as if it were agile. So they've fallen back into this methodology, this process in me is agile, and that's not it. Um, it's really about understanding when are you doing knowledge-based things and having people and teams work together effectively and learn effectively? When are you doing manufacturing-like things and managing that mix over time? And my contention is the only way to do that effectively is to develop really strong leaders and to have a leadership that is focused on those three items that I talked about you know, rigor, efficiency, um, and alignment. And then the next question is, how do you make that happen? And that's where I talk about certain frameworks that are valuable. What, what's, what was the, what's the reason for kind of the falling back into the scrum methodology? Ah, was it, what was the it was failure. Okay. okay. That previous method fails. Okay. And, in my own experience, when I was at Wells Fargo during the mortgage crisis, I was in charge of all the software development and technology and the process engineering for the mortgage default group. Okay, so that was a kind of a very formative experience for me. Um, and then um, I was also involved in building a very large origination system for all secured lending. Um, and so this is like an enormous project, like hundreds of millions of dollars or more, you know, many hundred people. Um, and I saw a very great company and Wells Fargo was a really good company. It still is a really good company. It's got a bad rap for a few things, but you know, it's a, it's one of the best companies in the world. Um, very expert, plenty of money, good ideas. And they followed a process oriented methodology to try to build a new origination system. Um, and they delivered, uh, you know, 500 pages of requirements and handed that off to the development team. And if you think about that, in 500 pages, there might be, you know, 5,000 decisions in there. If you're 95% right, you have a, a thousand things wrong, right? And you go turn that into code, you don't know about it to the end, you have a big failure. Yeah. 
Okay. And so the, um, those kinds of following those kind of processes, which are called waterfall, because it's, you know, step by step, they just don't work. And so we'd like them to work. It's a logical way of doing things. It would be lovely if you could just articulate what you want and get it. Um, the problem is it's too complicated. Um, you have to do one thing at a time and test it and make sure it works so you're not building um, more things on failed ideas. So it's really out of desperation, I think, that the industry has changed. A lot of failed projects because the previous method just didn't work. You, you make this argument in the book that when we're talking about uh, tangible things that we can put our hands on, uh, like buildings or like cars, mm-hmm. um, it's it's easier sometimes for us as teams to to grab a hold and kind of walk through the process, depending on our methodology. But when we get yeah. to things like code and the intangibles and the digital space, that's proving to be, you know, a a a, a much bigger challenge. Uh, what can leaders do who who are trying to make that adjustment? Maybe you've been at your company 30, yeah. 40, 50 years, and you're trying to make this adjustment to this new world and new space yeah. and new employees uh, and this now emphasis on, on people. If I'm a senior leader and I've been effective, uh, what are some of the things that I need to do to continue uh, within this framework to be more effective over, over the long haul before, before I'm off yeah. the career? Let's talk about two different things that are um, interrelated. So one is the big picture. So from a very big picture perspective, you know, it starts with strategy and what are you trying to accomplish and where do you want to go? And you have to have an idea for that. It's just like in software, if you start coding before you have your architecture you know, relatively complete, you're going to make a mess. And so that big idea is important. And then, the, then it is, what's the next step I have to take? So you have to have a rough idea of what the plan to get there is, but don't be too wedded to it. And, and then take the next step, see if it works, and adjust. And that's, that's kind of what Scrum is all about. Um, and then what Agile, uh, one of the main ideas of Agile, which is to test things immediately. So that's at the biggest picture level. Right? Now, if you bring it down to your daily work uh, and how you actually lead, I would say that this idea of rigor, alignment, and efficiency uh, is pretty much universal. And how important it is depends on the kind of work you're doing. If you're managing a car wash, not quite so important. If you're managing a big institution, really important. Um, But everywhere, I think those are universal ideas that vary in how applicable they are. Now, how do you implement those things? So I've used a term called frameworks. And frameworks are simply uh, tools to help bring rigor, alignment, and efficiency. And there's, you know, there's as many frameworks as you could, uh, you know, there's hundreds of them, obviously, and they're different. But each organization can only have so many, because if you want to have alignment, you can't be making up a new way of doing things all the time. Okay? Stuff that you can't make up new ones ever, but you can make them up all the time. So in your organization, what are those frameworks that help with rigor, alignment, and efficiency? So some of my favorites are, you know, Lean Agile gives you some, um, things like Scrum and Scrum boards and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, Toyota has something called the A3, which is simply a one-page statement of a problem and a proposed solution. So the idea with that, and you can Google, your audience can Google this, it's, a, it's, very, it's pretty standard. It's a one-page thing with starts off with what's my problem, 
Uh, what's my data about my current state? Where do I want to go? Uh, what are my options for getting there? Who's my team? And what are my next steps? And the idea of doing something like that is you, you have to summarize it on one page, which is really hard. And I'm not very religious about one page. My team always goes over maybe two pages or they'll do one page with an appendix or something. Um, but the idea isn't, isn't that document itself. It's the process of first saying, here's the problem, and then sharing it with people um, and getting agreement on that is the problem. And then what is my data about my current state going forward? So I love that. That's one of my favorites. Another one that I haven't seen in action, which I would love to, is from Amazon, um, which is the idea there is if you go into a meeting at Amazon, they take the first 10 or 15 minutes of the meeting to make everyone read the memorandum that was delivered for the meeting. Mm -hmm. yeah. So people have to write a four to six page memo. It's a narrative. It's very much like a Word document, like an A3. Um, and they force people to read it so that when people start the meeting, they don't just start going off in tangents and they don't have all different bases of knowledge and they haven't listened to the team. They actually read the document. And again, there, it's as important that they read the document and they have a document that as that the team had to write this document together. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so those are uh, two of my favorite frameworks. Um, different Companies will have their own kind, but I think those kinds of tools really help. One other thing I, I really emphasize in my book is meetings. So yeah, people, think I'm a, <laughs> people think I'm a bit of a lunatic about meetings mm -hmm. um, because I love them. And no one in corporations likes meetings. They're a waste of time. I have too many people, not well-structured. Those are all true. And so we spend a lot of time teaching people how to have meetings, um, helping them with tools to facilitate, and then being tough on them when someone calls a meeting and it's not well prepared. Um, so meetings are very big leverage points. You know, if we have a, like I'm just thinking of the last big meeting that we had, I had 25 people there from all over the country, you know, from senior executives to, you know, a couple layers below. You know, if you add up to how much that costs, you're spending tens of thousands of dollars on a meeting. Yeah. You better be well prepared for it. Yeah. Um, and then you better have the value. So I, I, I have a whole chapter in my book about how to have a good meeting. And then I show good meetings in action. Um, so for, you know, for people who are learning how to lead, learning how to have a good meeting, I think, is one of the most important skills. I think this uh, aligns with what you were talking about in terms of rigor, efficiency and alignment as well. I mean, you know, there's this whole idea of it, time is like huge. We don't have a lot of time. So if we're spinning our wheels in a meeting or we're sitting down and you have no idea of the objective. And I like I've heard the Amazon uh, process a couple of times um, yeah. before as well. And you're also speaking to culture. So. Uh, let's let's take let, let's put somebody who is like a new executive uh, or new senior director. Mm -hmm. They're in their you know, late 30s, late 30s, early 40s, and they're going into a culture that is like you talked about um, with meetings where we're just kind of shooting from the hip. Our meetings take two, three hours. It's a mess. What are some of the fundamental things um, that you outline in the book that that person now who's trying to create a new culture of meeting? 
uh, can begin to do, uh, on, even on a small scale? Yeah, um, it, certainly it starts with that leader, him or herself, that their own meetings are well-prepared and well-led and valuable. Um, and then it goes to their direct report. So I believe that this is a top-down issue, that leaders have to demand that kind of meetings and have to train their people in how to have those kind of meetings and have to expect and evaluate people on that basis. And so, um, you know, in the, in, when I came to U.S. Bank, they didn't have a culture of that kind of meeting and they didn't really, they didn't have a, enough of a travel budget to get people together. And then that gradually started to change as we adopted more agile. Um, so I know I brought in a trainer to teach people um, how to lead meetings. So I think the idea, if you think about um, some of the techniques that are used in good meetings where you have a really great agenda. So what are you, what's the goal of the meeting? Okay. And what's the outcome of the meeting? And then lay out what is the path to get there? I think of like the Candyland game. I don't know if you have kids. Oh, yeah. You think of that path, right? That windy path. Mm -hmm. So lay it out for the whole audience what that path is and what each step is. And then check for alignment as you go. That set of facilitative leadership skills for meetings to me is, an, is a, just kind of an analog for leadership in general. So what kinds of tools and techniques can you use in meetings that make a difference? So it's the things with the little stickies you stick on things, you know, the more of less of things, doing joint um, process flow diagrams together. Um, and in my book, I talk about um, and I show meetings in action that are valuable to do things like project, project planning, retrospectives, how to do a phone meeting, um, to use some of these tools to have great meetings. And then one other thing I'll mention, uh, and uh, you know, as a leader, uh, I'm sure you have the same kind of experience. You're never quite sure you're doing the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, um, but you no. Know, sometimes in meetings, if the, if someone set it up and it's getting off track, I'll call a timeout, and I'll, I'll bring the leader outside the room, the manage the meeting manager, and maybe a couple other people, and say, "This isn't going the right way. We need to reset." And it's really hard on people when I do that. I, I only do it a couple of times a year, I think. Um, but it's extremely impactful because then they know that they got to do a better job and they got to be managing their meetings. And if they get to a point where it's not going well, take a time out and start again. Um, don't just keep wasting people's time. What, what do you think that would make people apprehensive to do that? I mean, there's this idea. What do you mean uh, take take a time out? Why don't I just yeah. slosh through the meeting and then at the end we'll do a debrief? I think there's a couple of uh, things here. Um, one is it's getting to the point where a leader is confident enough to kind of own a meeting, to to manage a meeting. Um, I don't see people getting to that point very easily. So they'll call a meeting and they'll have five or six uh, bullets as their agenda and then they'll start into it and they won't have planned what happens in each of those steps. Okay. And so just that basic understanding of my job, if I'm going to call this meeting, is to plan the whole damn thing. And it's not just to put an agenda together, it's to lay that Candyland path from the beginning to the end. And when I do that, I can't do that by myself because I have other people in this meeting. 
So sometimes you have to have meetings to plan meetings. And I love those. Okay? People think it's ridiculous to make fun of the idea of having a meeting to plan a meeting. Um, but it's really valuable. It's like that idea of the A3 where you say, here's the problem, share it around, make sure that's the right problem. So um, I think that that's the first thing is getting over this idea that if I'm calling the meeting and I want an outcome for the meeting, I have to align with people before I go in and put it together well enough that I can tell if it's on track or not. Because if I just go in a meeting and it's just an agenda with five or six bullet items, how is it supposed to go? Right? <laughs> Uh, so, so that's the first charge. And then the, <laughs> the second one is once I have that, I've invested a lot in that approach uh, and I'm pretty wedded to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, a lot of people, it takes a while for people to get confident enough in their leadership skills uh, first to get to the point of having that kind of meeting mm-hmm. and then to actually be aware of if it's going well or not and having enough confidence to stop and adjust it. That's like uh, advanced leadership skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it takes it takes time to get there. This is good. You're giving us a master class uh, <laughs> right now. So it's really good. Now, before we run out of time, there's one other piece uh, that you share in the book that I really want to get to. And it's this idea uh, that leaders, in order to get the best out of both the process and the people that they're working with, they got to roll up their sleeves and get in there and work. And this idea of helping to facilitate what's going on. Instead of just standing back in your ivory tower, glass office, and watching from a distance, how, 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 why is that so important? And how can leaders make that transition um, to actually do Yeah. Um, so one of the concepts in Lean, there's actually a principle. I'll, I'm going to re- read it for you. Let's see, where is it? Um, the best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. Okay. That's a really nice idea. And then build projects around motivated individuals. Give them the environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done. Now, I love those principles. Those are great principles. And when this was published in 2002, I thought it was a a very useful set of principles as an antidote to this top-down control and follow the process. But what does that say about the role of organizational leaders, right? Is that really our job is to just give people the tools and space they need and say, go do a good job, hope it comes out okay. And my contention is not, mm-hmm. right? That we have a much more important role to play to help our team succeed. And I frame it in the terms of my principles of rigor, alignment, and efficiency um, in terms of what is our job to make teams succeed. So things like making sure that we're defining the right roles. So, you know, one of the ideas in, in Agile is it's simply an undifferentiated team that's very few specified roles. Okay. And I don't believe that's true. I believe there's a role for a chief engineer. I believe there's a role for a specialist in business analysis. I believe there's specialists in test management, et cetera. So as a leader, that's what I can help add the team. Also, things like managing uh, the performance of the team members. If you've ever been on a team with someone who's not pulling their weight or can't do their job, it's very hard for a team to deal with that on their own. Um, and that's where kind of organizational leaders have to be involved. So you have to know enough about what's going on in the team and have enough feedback that you can help them make those adjustments. Um, things like connecting teams to each other. So each you want to have teams that are autonomous as much as possible, but they also interconnect. Okay. And getting them to interconnect in the right way, that's an organizational leadership issue. 
how do I get teams to have enough knowledge of what the other teams are doing, but not too much. Um, so that I lay out in the book a whole bunch of, I have a whole chapter called the obligations of organizational leaders, which talks about the set of obligations that we have. Another one I'll mention, so I talked about frameworks a lot is propagating frameworks, uh, which is things like expecting good meetings, making sure people are trained in that. Are you going to use an A3 or the Amazon approach? Those are all organizational leadership issues um, that help teams succeed. We have a, a lot of emerging leaders, uh, college students, B-school students who listen to the podcast. And I'm guessing that some of them may be a bit overwhelmed um, at this point because they're thinking, man, am I expected to be able to do this right out of school? <laughs> you know, right into my role. I want to, I read all the books. Yeah. I've I read Michael's book and I want to be that yeah. top tier, high performance, um, yeah. well-processed driven, well-people cultured leader, like right out of the gate. Can you, can you kind of help us set some expectations on the reality surrounding this? Yeah, that's not going to happen. Obviously. Um, you know, I just use myself as an example. You know, when I was, 30, my concept of leadership was figured out and get people to do what I wanted them to do. Um, when I learned how to be a better facilitative leader, it took me a long time before I could have my first effective meeting. And, you know, when I realized that I'd been having meetings for a decade as a professional and doing well, I mean, I was rising in my career, but my meetings were horrible and they were kind of embarrassing. It's like, oh, and then you do your first one and it's, it's you know, you have to kind of get up your courage to conduct that kind of a meeting yeah, yeah. and then do it. Um, so you're putting yourself on the line a little bit. Um, I'll tell you one more story about someone uh, who joined my team last year and he was a project manager pretty far along in his career. And we sent him through the leadership training and he was, he wanted to conduct his first meeting like this. And it's a really cool kind of a meeting. We call it a process and technology architecture. meeting. And there's a chapter in my book that describes it. It's a very powerful framework of bringing together the technology design and the business process in kind of a very interesting way. So he wanted to try it. So he put the meeting together. And I like to come to these things when I can. And I happen to have time to come to this. And uh, so I just came and I was, I just kind of sat in the back and was watching it. And occasionally, I mean, I don't just sit in the back. Of meetings. <laughs> I can't keep my mouth shut enough, but I mostly did and let him have the meeting. And it was terrible. <laughs> it was really bad. Um, but even bad meeting, if it started out better, it's better than how it would have gone otherwise. So after the meeting, I pulled him aside. And you know, one of the things I learned is that when you give feedback, I always talk about what's right for us. And so I said, Gary, Gary this is you know, a really good try. Um, it was valuable. But here's some things you could do to make it better. And he was open to the feedback. And this is a guy who's been pretty far along in his career, very successful. Uh, he was open to feedback. He got it. Uh, and then he invited me to the next one he did. And it was about perfect. It was so different nice. than the first one. Um, it was very exciting to see. And those are the kind of things that make me love being a manager, actually. I was I was going to ask, you know, to share some success stories and coaching people through this process. But you 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 tied the ribbon with that one. Um, very well. But I do want to ask you this. So how we've been really intrigued. I know a lot of interest has been piqued. What's the best way to catch up with you 
um, to keep track of your work, to follow you on social, or more importantly, most importantly, how do we get a copy of People Over Process? Yeah, the books are, my books are available on Amazon. Um, it's called People Over Process, Leadership for Agility. Um, I have a personal website that's called thetalesofagility.com. I'll say it one more time, thetalesofagility.com. And in there, I basically describe my, you know, my first book was What is Lean and Agile and Why Do We Do It? My second book was How Do You Make Your Organization Change to Be More Lean and Agile? And this third one is, uh, is about leadership. Because I think that's where it comes together at the end. So this trilogy, I call the Tales of Agility. Um, and so they're all described there and it has links to all my books. Are you stopping at a, tri- at a trilogy? Are you going to do a fourth one in this particular series? I don't know. Actually, I don't know. Um, I didn't know I was writing a trilogy until I wrote the third book. Um, you know, Each one responded to a certain place where I was in my career and where the industry was. You know, the first one was about, as we made this transition from total process orientation into Lean and Agile, the second one is as people started to understand that and tried to change their organization, how do you do that? And this is all about sustaining it. So how do you keep this going over time and how do you adjust? We've, we've had a re- very rich uh, conversation. I know my, my, my audience has been taking furious notes and we'll go back and listen to this episode again, but... Um, I just want to thank you for just sharing your knowledge and your experience, the transparency of your journey and, and being a part of our conversation today. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, been very, very interesting. It made me think about things I haven't thought about for a while. Great conversation with Michael K. Levine about his book, People Over Process, Leadership for Agility. And, and Michael dropped some incredible insights for us. And I hope you took good notes. Now, I put the links to Michael's book and his work in the show notes so that you can follow up with him. So you can follow him on LinkedIn. If you have a leadership question, not just related to technology, but you got a leadership question and your interest was really piqued by Michael's work, I want to encourage you to reach out to him. Hey, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading While Green podcast. You know, it's my mission to help you live, learn and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.